we look forward now to having the Lord speak to us through His Word as we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, it's on page 764 in your pew Bible, at least the portion we'll be looking at this morning, verses 35 to 38. Matthew 9, 35 to 38, we'll be um, reading that in just a few minutes so you can keep your finger there for now. We're in the final week of a three-part series on our vision statement. Embrace God's truth, enjoy His people, extend His glory. The sequence of those statements is deliberate because the Christian life begins by embracing God's truth. Uh, All of Scripture points to Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you have seen that made known through the baptismal testimonies this morning. Those who believe in Jesus, by God's grace, belong to his family. And that's why those who embrace God's truth get to enjoy God's people. Paul writes in Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. And and that takes us to part three of our vision statement that we want to talk about today. Extend God's glory. The glory of God can be described as the outward expression of God's own excellence. That's a very simple definition, but a workable one. God's glory is the outward expression of His own excellence. So just as getting baptized is going public with your faith, uh, God's glory is going public with His greatness. Um, I think it was last week we read Psalm 19, which tells us how God's glory is revealed through creation. Um, Psalm 19.1 says that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. God's glory is revealed most powerfully and clearly, though, in His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Apostle, who was an eyewitness of Christ, wrote in his gospel that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His what? His His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But there's a third way that God reveals His glory, and this should humble us and awe us as we think about it, and that is this. God reveals His glory through the church. Think about this. The night before His death, Jesus prayed for all who would believe in Him as Lord and Savior, and He testified to God the Father The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Think on that truth for just a moment. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. As we love one another, as Christ has loved us, the world will look at the church and say, God is at work there. God is among you. But becoming like Christ is the key. Which is to say that the church's glory is not an intrinsic glory, something that we have in and of ourselves. It's what is called a derived glory. It is a glory that God himself gives to us, God himself being the source of all glory. 
2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help the people of God become more like the Son of God. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus' compassion for lost people. People who are far from God. People who are suffering the ill effects of sin. And people who need salvation. And Scripture says, and such were some of you. Such was the case with the three people you heard testify of God's grace in their life. Three lost people who now belong to the Lord. And yet there are so many more lost people out there. As Jesus ministers to these multitudes of lost people, he enlists the help of his disciples. And that's what we read in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Please follow along as I read. I'll actually continue on through chapter 10 to the first part of verse 5. But beginning in Matthew 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. Lord, as we seek to better understand your word over these next few moments, I ask once again, as Brother Dave has already prayed, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and cause us to see the truths that you have for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A soldier who was wounded during a field training exercise was sent by his superior officer to the military hospital. Upon arriving at this large, imposing building, he saw two doors at the entryway. Uh, one door said, for the slightly wounded, one said, for the seriously wounded. Well, he went through the door for the slightly wounded, and, and he found himself walking down a long corridor. And at the end of that corridor, there were two other doors. One said, for enlisted personnel. The other one said, for officers. He chose the second door and went through the door for officers. Once again, he found himself down another long hallway, and he walked down the long corridor. And at the end of that corridor, there were yet two more doors for commissioned officers, for non-commissioned officers. He walked through the door for non-commissioned officers and found himself back on the street. 
He goes back to the barracks, and the superior officer says to them, how did things go at the hospital? And the soldier replied, he says, well, they didn't do anything for me, but I'll tell you this, they sure are organized. (laughs) Some could say the same thing about many local churches today. Very well organized, but not much help to those who are hurting. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Why is that, considering that we have more technology, more opportunities, more resources than we have ever had before in church history? Well, Jesus gives us the reason right here in Matthew 9. The problem is a lack of laborers. A lack of workers in God's harvest. Jesus, in this passage, impresses upon his disciples the message that the Holy Spirit has recorded for our benefit so that God can inscribe this principle on our hearts today. And that principle is this. Rescuing lost people requires our compassionate, prayerful participation in God's mission. Rescuing lost people requires our compassionate, prayerful participation in God's mission. And that's why we read the text we did earlier, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, which is referred to as the great co-mission. The point being that we are on mission with God. We are co-workers, co-laborers with God to make disciples. Which means it is incumbent upon us as believers not only to celebrate the good news of Jesus, but to spread the good news of Jesus, to extend God's glory. For this to happen, we we must take our cue from Jesus. We must start with his heart because the great commission is fueled by great compassion. And that's what we see in the life and example of Jesus. For our hearts to be moved, for lost people, we need to see the world as Jesus sees. So let's think about the divine perspective. The divine perspective. Look again, if you would, at Matthew 9, verses 35 to 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now we're just kind of like landing midway through Matthew's gospel, but if you were to read where this part appears in the flow of the book of Matthew, you would see that Matthew has been recounting various miracles that Jesus had performed. He has, he has recapped some of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. And the point is that Jesus' miracles authenticated his message as the Messiah, the long-awaited king who was appointed by God to save his people. You might recall what Nicodemus the Pharisee said to Jesus in John chapter 3. He said, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God because nobody could do the works that you do unless he came from God. So Jesus' miracles authenticated his message as having come from God. B.B. Warfield, one of the greatest theologians ever in American history, wrote this. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. 
The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. As we think about Jesus coming to earth with these trailing clouds of glory, those clouds included the love and compassion of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. When we see Jesus' heart, we see the heart of God for sinners. And that's why when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That word compassion comes from a Greek term, splankna, which refers literally to a person's intestines, his entrails, what we would say his gut. And Matthew's point is that when Jesus saw the condition of lost people, he was not only emotionally moved, he was physically affected. Physically affected. And if you have ever seen somebody that you love suffering and your heart aches for them, your stomach churns, your your insides are turned inside out, you know what that feels like. And Matthew was saying that Jesus was pained in the depths of his being. He was pained in the gut. He agonized over the condition of the lost crowds around him. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Another translation says that they were distressed and dejected. People who lacked any real direction in life, chasing after pleasures. I so much appreciated Ben's testimony. Chasing after things that that they thought would bring them pleasure. Things that they thought would satisfy the deepest needs of their life, only to wind up anxious, empty, and sad. And that broke Jesus' heart. They desperately needed Jesus as their merciful shepherd. The the Pharisees were certainly not that. They they, They were ones who fleeced the sheep, who used their authority and their leadership to get something from them rather than give something to them. But Jesus was prepared to give his very life for the sheep. And that's why he is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. And he is the merciful shepherd that these poor, harassed, and helpless sheep needed. And that's why he proclaimed to them, as we read, the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom here refers to the reign of God's king, the Messiah, over the lives of his people now, but eventually and eternally over the new heavens and the new earth. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that kingdom will be consummated when Jesus comes. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come. But that kingdom already exists in the hearts and lives of those who have yielded their hearts to God, acknowledging and worshiping and obeying Jesus as their Savior and King. I wonder if you see people the way that Jesus did. When you see the crowds at your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, at sporting events, in restaurants. Can you see their suffering? Can you see their emptiness? Can you see their sadness? 
Scripture says, even in laughter, the heart may ache. And when the laughter ends, the grief remains. To see people in their true condition, we need to look past the surface of their lives. Only God can give us this kind of insight and sensitivity. Years ago, when about the time I graduated from high school, so we're going back probably 20 years anyway, a song came out by Christian recording artist Steve Green, which still speaks to me powerfully this day, and he talks about this kind of sensitivity and insight regarding people's lostness, their need for the Lord. Let me just read you a portion of the lyrics because it goes to the issue of seeing people as Jesus does. He wrote, Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living from fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries, only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that people need the Lord? We are called to take His light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. To save the lost, we must see them as Jesus did. But this divine perspective is not enough. It must be accompanied by diligent prayer. And that takes us again to verses 37 and 38 of Matthew 9. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here, quite obviously, Jesus is shifting metaphors from from shepherding to harvesting. Now, we tend to think of the harvest... I would say most believers will look at this passage and and tend to think of the harvest as souls being ripe for the gospel. Uh, That if we share the gospel with them, they're ripe and they're ready to receive it. And and I'm not saying that's not true. There are people that are definitely out there that are ready, that are ripe for the gospel. But I don't think that's Matthew's emphasis. It's because of how Matthew uses the imagery of harvest throughout the rest of his gospel. Just a few chapters later in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, or we might say the wheat and the weeds, Jesus describes the harvest as a time when God's judgment will come on the earth. Jesus says that he will, at that time of harvest, bring the wheat, that is, true believers, into his barn. He's keeping up the imagery, but he's talking about his kingdom into the place of eternal blessing. But the tares, or the weeds, is going to be thrown into a flaming furnace, a burning fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So at the final judgment, every person is either going to be barned or they're going to be burned. They're either going to experience eternal blessing in the presence of God or they will perish forever in the flames of hell on account of their sin. 
Jesus won all out in serving others and proclaiming the good news that people can be saved by trusting in him. Because Jesus sensed the urgency of the hour. Jesus knew of the awful impending judgment of God that awaited those who were separated from God on account of their sin. And Christ alone bridges that gap. Jesus had compassion for these people who were lost, who were separated from God on account of their sin. The global population in Jesus' day was probably at most 300 million. In our day, it's nearly 8 billion, 5.5 billion of which are still lost apart from Christ. If you were to view five lost people per second, it would take you 35 years to get through everybody. Five people per second. See it on the screen. It would take 35 years to see everybody. Do we sense the urgency of this crisis? One would think that given the condition of the lost and the coming judgment, Jesus would say, here's the harvest. Now, now go. But he doesn't say that. He says, here's the harvest. Now pray. Pray. Pray for the Lord to send out more laborers, more workers into his harvest. Remember one pastor saying years ago that the mark of a great church is, is not its seeding capacity, but its sending capacity. We've said in recent weeks that church is not a spectator sport, and the same is true when it comes to our mission in this world. Our churches should be launching bases for sending laborers into the harvest. And yet many Christians never consider the possibility that God might be calling them to proclaim the gospel cross-culturally or in some other location. One pastor reminds us that Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr to the Aka Indians in Peru, lamented the fact that so few were willing to go to the mission field in his own day. He said, our young men are going into other fields because they don't feel called to the mission field. And then Jim Elliott said, we don't need a call. What we need is a kick in the pants. End quote. And when we pray, according to Jesus, we will experience God sending us out in different ways to different places. And that's what we see at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. Deployed personnel. Deployed personnel. After commanding his disciples to pray, Jesus calls them to himself. He equips and empowers them to carry on his work as he's going back to the Father. And then he sends them out. And we know from the book of Acts that they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sent to them. And if you know anything about the 12 apostles, you know that they were an eclectic bunch. Different backgrounds, personalities, temperaments, skill sets. And they were far from perfect. We see that throughout all the Gospels. In fact, one of them ended up being a traitor. But what do we see? In Scripture, we see that Jesus uses all sorts of people to accomplish his mission. Jesus uses all sorts of people to accomplish his mission. In fact, if I could just read one passage briefly to you that 
has just now come to my mind. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says at the end of the chapter in verses 26 to 31, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are counted as nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You might say, well, that's easy for Paul to say. I mean, Look, I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. This guy was utterly incredible. But Paul immediately goes on to say, and I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So if you're saying, well, I'm, I'm not a speaker. I'm not you know, an extrovert. I don't have a lot of wisdom. I, I don't know how to combat various arguments. Tell people about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and trust the Spirit of God to use weaklings like me and you to show the power of God in the life of someone who desperately needs Christ as their Savior. Now, the apostles' mission was different from ours in some ways. They were given ability to heal every disease and every affliction. I mean, that's amazing. That's what Jesus was doing physically. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul refers to these miraculous works as the signs of an apostle. It authenticated their message just as Jesus' miracles authenticated his message. The author of Hebrews tells us, God confirmed their message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, we read that the apostles were sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this portion of Matthew, but by the time we get to the end of Matthew, all disciples everywhere are commissioned by God to go where? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Not just them, but where? To all nations. Make disciples of all nations, all peoples everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ Jesus has empowered and equipped us you and me as believers, to extend his glory, to spread his glory, to expand his glory to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. With this in mind, I'd like to sum up this sermon and really this series with five brief points of application based on this text using glory as an acronym. How can you extend God's glory? G, go. Go out into the world, into your world, the sphere of influence where God has placed you with a missional mindset. Many of you are the only Christian in your neighborhood. You're the only believer in your class. You're the only follower of Christ in your workplace. 
And you are uniquely placed by God to reach people who may not otherwise hear the good news of Jesus unless you come through and do it on the power of the Holy Spirit. So go. Go into your world, the world where God has already placed you, and use your influence to bring people to Jesus Christ. Go into your world with a missional mindset. L, love. Love people like Jesus. See people with his eyes, eyes of compassion. Remember Steve Green's song. Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. And that leads to the O. Own it. Own it. Own your responsibility in the matter. What is the greatest blessing in your life as a believer? It's to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What is the most important thing? What is the biggest blessing you could bring to any other person on planet Earth? The good news of salvation so that they can know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Help him or her to know Jesus as their Savior. You are the king's messenger. I remember when Canaan Parker was associate pastor here a number of years ago. And uh, he mentored several young men, including Pastor Mike. And he would meet with one of my sons fairly often. And many times before my son would leave Pastor Canaan's office, he would give a final word of exhortation. He would say, rep the king. Rep the king. Represent the king. That's the responsibility and privilege of every Christian. So own it. R, rely. Rely on the Holy Spirit to do what Christ has commissioned you to do. Jesus told the apostles not to go anywhere until they had received power from on high. And then he sent them the Holy Spirit who empowered them to do the work that God alone can do through willing channels like you and me. Ask the Lord of the harvest not only to help you be a faithful representative for Jesus Christ, but ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the harvest. Without God's help, we can do nothing. Jesus said that. He said, apart from me, you cannot do anything, but with God, all things are possible. So as you go into the world and love people like Jesus, owning your responsibility in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit this is the why. Yearn for the day when a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, will stand before the throne of God and the Lamb of God and will shout with a mighty roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And they'll fall before the throne with their faces to the ground and they will worship God and sing. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Father, forgive us for not extending your glory, for celebrating the gospel, but not spreading the gospel as you would have us to. But we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit loves us too much to leave us in our sin and calls us 
to live lives that are pleasing to you. It not only calls us, but equips us and empowers us so that we can truly be pleasing to you. We thank you that all this is on account of your grace. For by your grace, we are saved. Not, not of ourselves, it is your doing. It's not of our work so that nobody can boast about it. For we are your masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, God, that, that you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I thank you, God, that we can go out confidently from this place, not because of how great we are, but because of how good and great you are, and that you delight to use people like us to accomplish your mission in this world. Lord, I pray that each of us would go out into the world where you have already placed us and be faithful ambassadors in that sphere of influence. I pray that even as we walk beyond the doors of the sanctuary, we would, we would interact with the representatives, uh, Rochester Family Mission, uh, from Caring Choices uh, crisis, uh, crisis Pregnancy Center, that we would interact with, with Josh Horn of 441 Ministries, that we would uh, sign up as a prayer partner with our missionaries, that we would uh, perhaps even look at visiting the jail with Good News Jail and Prison Ministry and working with Chaplain Brian Duclos to take the gospel to prisoners who need the Lord Jesus Christ. So many avenues of service, so many opportunities. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to be listening to your Holy Spirit. Help us not to turn away a deaf ear from your word this morning, but to delight in the law of the Lord and to do what you command in the strength and power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this, that Christ Jesus, our great God and Savior, might be glorified. Amen.